Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Matthew Lynch uh, about his book Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God with InterVarsity Press in 2023. Um, and Dr. Lynch and I talk through a little bit about the sort of canonical shape of the question of violence. That is, how does a reading of Genesis and the whole scripture uh, help us understand the question of violence in the Old Testament? Uh, I also include a question from a student of mine uh, who I taught Hebrew to who had some questions about personal violence, and, and Dr. Lynch was uh, gracious enough to answer some broad questions. Um, so uh, I just want to thank Dr. Lynch for coming on, um, and I hope that you uh, enjoy this conversation. Uh, please uh, do rate us and review us on iTunes, um, and, and that helps other people find the show. Um, so we have a lot of shows coming up. We have Matthew Lynch. Uh, we have Zach Hicks, who's going to talk a little bit about uh, the Reformation and Thomas Cranmer. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Hinlicky back on. Uh, he's going to discuss with us Samuel Stefanosuski and his uh, 20th century sojourn. Um, just a lot of things coming up on the podcast. So uh, thank you for listening. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Matthew Lynch. Uh, today we have on uh, A History of Christian Theology, we've got Dr. Matthew Lynch, um, and Dr. Lynch is professor of Old Testament at Regent College in Vancouver, um, and uh, he has recently written uh, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God uh, with uh, IVP uh, Press or InterVarsity Press, um, and uh, we're very grateful to have uh, Dr. Lynch on. Thanks, Chad. Good to be here. Yeah. I and also sometimes I should I would you prefer me just to call you Matt or Dr. Yeah, Lynch Matt's or, great. Okay. Yeah. Uh I'm grateful to have Matt here. Um <laughs> and uh if for, for those of you who don't know uh Matt, uh Matt also founded the On Script podcast of which I am uh I don't know if I'm a regular listener, I'm maybe more of an occasional listener, uh but mm -hmm. I've enjoyed it for a long time, so. Yeah, glad to hear it. It's been fun. Good. Good. Well, so here we're talk. Uh, as I said, we're here to talk about his his new book. And um, I one of my questions, uh, actually a couple of my questions, almost start uh, from I, I found out about the book because I have students who I was teaching Hebrew to who are asking me questions about Old Testament violence. Um, and I was thinking mm -hmm. about it even this morning. Um, I teach an intro to theology class, and I have them read a little bit of Genesis and Exodus. And immediately the students say man, God is just so angry um, hmm. in, in the Old Testament. And and it was a real ch uh, challenge. It's always a challenge to be like, you know, well, that's this, you know, as Christians, we believe it's the same God. Um, you know, you, there's none of this like God's angry here, but nice here. Um, and uh, you kind of talk about that at the end of the book a little bit. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, maybe talk a little bit, because I think from what I remember from the book, a lot of this was occasioned by conversations that you've had uh, with people yeah. about some of these questions. Yeah, for sure. It definitely comes up with with students quite often. Um, and and I think it, it can lead to real disillusionment because they're kind of paying attention to the Bible in an intentional way for the maybe the first time or in a, in a space where they're kind of freed up to think through things. Uh, so it can lead to disillusionment or or even cynicism about the Bible um, or a kind of negative view of the Old Testament and a thought that maybe a, a sort of nagging thought that, hmm, I wonder if all we're doing when we 
read the Bible is just pick out our favorite texts and string them together and build our theology off of that. Mm. So part of what I've been challenged by is as an Old Testament scholar and teacher is to bring students into those hard texts as uh, an opportunity for discipleship and and a part of journeying with God uh, through the hard stuff. And I think um, I think that's important. And, and part of that is um, helping them think through the hidden costs of, of either dismissing some of those hard texts or trying to resolve them too quickly. Mm. And, and to see that maybe what seems like a solution, mm. uh, like a, a nice, clean solution, say, um, just saying, well, Old Testament writers misunderstood God. Right, that seems like a nice solution to a really thorny, difficult problem. That that has hidden costs to it. So you're, mm. so I want people, whatever direction they go, and in, in sort of end at the end of the day, I want them to at least have uh, have read the theological and biblical fine print <laughs> um, to what they're signing on to, because I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of books and and you know popular podcasters and writers out there who who do propose like kind of nice totalizing solutions to the problem of violence. Yeah. And um, so, so I want them to think through things like if you get rid of a wrath, um, what else are, it comes with that. Right. And, you know, that's in, in many cases in the old Testament, wrath is the engine driving God's concern for justice mm-hmm. uh, or um, the, the tendency sometimes to try to resolve a problem having only done a kind of preliminary diagnosis of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you take a quick reading of the text and then ask the question, all right, how are we going to deal with this? And it might turn out that you're trying to resolve or solve a problem that the text is has like a much much more nuanced, complex view on. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of thing that that's really spurred me on. And, and increasingly, I've seen it as a, a key part of the discipleship process. Um, yeah. to 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 wade through and to struggle through some of the hard hard stuff. And, and as you know, Chad, from studying theology, like when you're doing Trinitarian theology, I'm sure it's a not not an exact same parallel, but there's a an analogy, I guess, um, in you know a lot of the work you're trying to do is to preserve a particular mystery. Uh, and, and also to help people not only understand something, but also to avoid certain errors or to avoid saying other things that might have hidden costs and consequences that you might not consider up front, right? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, like, yeah, I think sometimes you use the language like putting a fence around the mystery. Like, well, we don't want to make that error. We don't want to make that error. But it's hard yeah. to say exactly what the thing is we're trying to define, <laughs> you know, sort of the problem yeah. of apophatism and cataphatism, you know, yeah. theology and positive theology. But yeah, mm-hmm. well, and I, I really appreciate uh, in the book, I've, I've, I, as I, I think I said this in the email, but um, I have recommended it to several of my friends who are pastors, um, just because I think uh, it feels like you're kind of, um, 
your sort of discipleship voice or your your teacher's voice comes across very clear when you like you front load the difficulty uh, without mm-hmm. resolving it. And so I thought it was yeah. a very helpful and and surprising way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times books that talk about violence and stuff like, yeah, we want to we want to get to the thing that's going to make us feel OK about it mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. you know, put a nice little bow on it. Uh, but you kind of like say, here's all the problems. Now, take a minute. Yeah. Uh, and then let's do something else for a minute and then we'll get yeah. back there. Yeah. Sometimes you have to first go like scream into your pillow, um, as a, as a first step. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I re- and I, so I felt like that was a very intentional way as part of like mm-hmm. seeing this through. And I think that could be a difficult thing in writing, uh, is like, how mm-hmm. are you going to like get the reader to trust you? Um, and it feels right. like you're kind of yeah. like building up that rapport with the reader um, before mm. you get into the the real difficult, um, yeah. the real difficult stuff. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of what I was also doing there in the intro, I, I am trying to front the problem so that people face it squarely. Right. So you, you're not you're not kind of whitewashing things and sugarcoating the Bible. Um, and, and but I also wanted to talk through some of the proposals for dealing with violence in the Bible and to kind of one by one talk about the sort of benefits and drawbacks of those approaches yeah. so that people can both empathize with uh, a particular angle on wrestling through violence in scripture, but also think about some of the, um, the problems with adopting a particular approach as your one or dominant approach to mm-hmm. the issue of violence. And, you know, just as an example, one of the most, one of the approaches that appeals in some circles and is a, abhorrent in others <laughs> is divine command theory, Sure, which is basically that if God says a particular action is justified, it's by definition just. So if God says, go wipe out the Canaanites yeah. down to every last one, then that's just. And so a lot of people, they hear that and they're like, that's, you know, what kind of God is that? And that's reprehensible. But I also want people to say, okay, I can see what you're trying to protect there. You're trying to protect the notion that there's some standard above God that God's beholden to and that, you know, that places a standard higher than God, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I can I can see like the need to preserve that. But then on the other side, I want people to think through that yeah. And and see, like, if we're called to be just as God is just, as as Isaiah calls us to, um, how can we imitate divine justice if there's no correlation between our our notion of justice and God's? Mm. Um, and and what about all those texts in the Bible where people question God's justice? Yeah. Right. So there's we, we can't just stop at God says it that settles it. Right. But we can at least listen to that approach and say, I see what they're trying to preserve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I and one thing I was thinking about just as you as you talked about that as a teacher, mm-hmm. sometimes I'm worried that so like you talk about front loading the difficulty and showing the drawbacks. Yeah. Uh and sometimes I'm afraid that I'm gonna set up a problem too big that I don't mm-hmm. know what the solution is, and then that's gonna right. like I'm gonna lose my students. It's gonna disillusion mm-hmm. them. That's like, oh man, yeah. you put that forward so clearly. Now yeah. what? <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, well, I want you to feel the tension, but I don't want you to be yeah. disillusioned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I I am very aware of that um, as I as I've written and on and taught on this subject. 
And I often say to people, if you don't have a big problem with violence in the Bible, I'm not interested in making sure that you do. <laughs> and Right? But at yeah. some point, you're going to have to, as a reader of the Bible, go deep enough so that you've at least thought about the issue for the person who's sitting next to you mm-hmm. in, in church or in your community um, who is struggling with that. And so I'm, I'm not interested in sort of fostering a faith crisis for everyone to demolish naive faith and so on, um, because I think for some people, they just trust God in this, and it's a kind of simple trust, and I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it's that balancing act of trying not to just, um, you know, precipitate a faith crisis, because I think that does lose trust. and. And I don't think it's ultimately helpful. And I think people can sense when someone's trying to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, um, so to kind of dig into the 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 book a little bit. So uh, as I've kind of mentioned, you you don't exactly just jump right to the Canaanite genocide and judges, mm-hmm. but you take a, um, a kind of uh, bigger view. So could you just say a little bit about maybe even how you came to that approach or like what led you to thinking through the problem and this mm-hmm. larger scope? Um, yeah. Yeah, one of, one of the questions that's always in view for me when wrestling through a problem like this or any other theological problem is, is the question, is there a way that the Bible itself is guiding us through this problem? You know, like, does it, it because I think Scripture, the writers of Scripture are, are tuned to the kinds of dilemmas that, that the life of faith includes. Right. And and granted, some of those are going to be different based on our, our sort of unique cultural moment um, and context. But some of those are perennial as well. And and just as an example, the way that I think the Bible sort of sets up and also helps us think through a problem is is Genesis four, where you have the Cain and Abel story. And and the story doesn't start out with the problem of violence. It starts out with the problem of apparent divine favoritism. And where you've got God accepting Abel's offering and rejecting Cain's. And it doesn't really give a rationale for that. Right. There's some maybe hints in the text, but not really. Right. So so we as readers are in the same position as I mean, uh, Cain and Abel in that sense of being like, what's going on here? Why are you just favoring one and not the other? And I think Genesis is fronting that for us because the life of faith will include the the problem of apparent divine favoritism mm. and but it doesn't leave things there because god comes alongside cain who wasn't favor and says there is a pathway toward in hebrew literally uplift or favor mm-hmm. but it comes through mastery of your anger mm. and and so so it both fronts the problem, but also provides at least a way of of navigating the life of faith in that, even though it doesn't resolve, like, why did God favor one over the other, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of what got what guides my thinking in the problem of violence as well. And and so I talk through those different approaches that I mentioned in the introduction, mm-hmm. but then I say they have benefits and drawbacks. There's some that I wholly reject, like Marcion's, you know, getting rid of the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and some I definitely don't prefer. But we can learn from each approach. But at the end of the day, I think the approach that to me is most 
important is is deep sensitivity mm. to the text um, to read it slow and prepare to be surprised mm. so that's sort of the 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 summary of my approach and and that's a, a kind of that requires a sort of field adaptive sensitivity to the contours the train the nuances of the text and then continual reflection on what implications that might hold for this question that we bring namely what do we do about violence in the bible yeah right so so that um that leads i guess in some ways to a, a more um as one person uh put it kaleidoscopic approach mm. right so I, I don't have like a a single model that i sort of cut through all the problems with yeah but i think what I provide, and I use the analogy in the end of like a multi-strand rope mm -hmm. that's dynamic, has flexibility to it, and doesn't put all the weight on any one of those strands. Yeah, right? and I and I think that's the way we have to to handle the load of a problem as as big and challenging and complex as violence in scripture. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh just as you were talking, it, it made me think a little bit about like, you know, churches that I've been in uh, and maybe trying to sort of think through like, how is it that we come to this problem? And I know many people, uh, myself included, you know, I, mm -hmm. I read the, the Canaanite story and I go, man, that's pretty awful. Uh, I can't yeah. believe that's in the Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? I wonder if, uh, and I mean, I'm going to offer a little solution, but I'd be interested mm -hmm. in, or suggestion, I'd be interested in what, how you yeah. understand like the kind of American church or maybe the English speaking church. Like, mm -hmm. why is this such a problem for us? And mm -hmm. my thought, my, my, the first thing that came to mind was the way that we preach the old Testament is often mm -hmm. very fragmented or not at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it makes it really tough then when every now and then you maybe nosedive into a specific passage, uh, right. and you're like, Oh, well there's, that's pretty weird. Uh, all right, well, mm -hmm. let's go back to the Gospels. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I like to point out that you can nosedive into the New Testament and have the same problem. Mm. Um, you know, Jesus saying, "I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." And yeah. and it's like, well, this Jesus guy seems like a pretty violent dude. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, I think that's I think that's a good a good point. Um, and you know, someone said or I can't remember if I brought it up, but like one of the problems of, of like contemporary discourse is that it's, it's dominated by sound bites and tweets and short memes and so on that, that are almost like put you in an impossible situation. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, um, if you see a, a quote, leave nothing alive that breathes, Right. It, with regard to the Canaanites and Joshua, like every last man, woman, child and animal. Like, how on earth can you respond to that with equal concision? Yeah. Right. So if the if the terms of discourse are that concise and pithy and short, I mean, what are you going to do? Quote back, love your neighbor. Like then you're in a war of verses. Right. So so I I almost feel like we have to opt out of that sort of discourse yeah. and, and just acknowledge that this is not something that can even really be engaged at that level. Um, and, and be willing to sort of take a, a fewer, but deeper approach. So like walking with a few people 
through the complexities and challenges rather than trying to hit everyone with your kind of like blockbuster, concise, one-line response. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that requires facility with the entirety of the Old Testament at some level, right? None of us have total facility, but it requires genre sensitivity, historical sensitivity, literary sensitivity, and all these things take time to develop and, and patience. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think you have to have a PhD and, and read a thousand books on the subject. Um, but it does require that patience and, and hope mm. and a willingness to read the old Testament as Jesus Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. And think, okay, somehow this is what I mean by a hopeful approach. Somehow this Hebrew Bible was the sort of formative curriculum for Jesus, mm-hmm. and it so formed him that he lived and taught as he did. Mm-hmm. So what is it about this that leads to a life and set of teachings like Jesus's? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I mean by a hopeful approach. And we might not yeah. be able to answer that with regard to every single verse on its own, Yeah. but hopefully with regard to the broad, broad contours of the Old Testament, we'll have something to say. Yeah. But that requires that sort of broad contoured awareness. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, it strikes me as we've been talking, uh, go, even mm-hmm. going back to the Cain and Abel example, uh, essentially what we've been dealing with a little bit back and forth is the problem of particularity and universality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's like, in a sense, like what, what you've just outlined, I think is a beautiful picture of like why we need to be in the particular for a while. Like, yeah. you know, you're like, it's like almost like God saying, come along, we're going to yeah. start small. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to give you the yeah. full picture. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you, you need to, and, and it's going to be frustrating and you're not going to like it. Uh, but yeah. yeah, a lot of us want that, like, you know, universal one kind of answer. uh, Mm -hmm. But the life of faith has never been that easy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And and I think there's an expectation that on the Bible's part, that it's Mm -hmm. going to be hard to trust. Yeah. So like, think about Abraham and Sarah. They're called out of their homeland, away from all those sort of social, economic, religious, political support systems of their extended family. They're, they're elderly. They're told to go migrate to this land. So they do it. And then it says in chapter 12, as soon as they get there, now there was a famine in the land, yeah. right? Like that, that's brutal. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think that's sort of a, a sort of short snapshot of what faith is going to involve. Yeah. And, and so the, like scripture's deeply aware of how hard it is to walk by faith. Yeah. And and I think that in, includes reckoning with the the experience of and and depiction of God as well. Yeah. Now I don't think it leaves it there at hey it's just hard and you're going to think God's a monster. I don't I don't think that's what the what the Bible presents or teaches, but it does acknowledge the the difficulty. And it, at various like key junctures. Yeah. Um, okay, so this one's a little off kilter, but it was one of the things that I hadn't thought of for 
uh, for a long time, but you, you talk about the Nephilim, uh, and yeah. their relationship to the, what goes on in Canaan. And it just reminded me like the other thing about the reading the old Testament, because it's our Bible, um, mm-hmm. we think it should be kind of, um, you know, uh, contemporary or I don't know, like sometimes we have misconceptions about what it is, but it just reminded me that sometimes the Bible's really weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and like, I, I'm in a place in my life where I'm okay with that. Like I yeah. have more fun yeah. with it, but there are times mm-hmm. when I, I'm presenting it to students who I don't know, you know, where they are in their life of faith, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. know if I really want to believe up that we talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men or, yeah. you know, these yeah. guys, like, I don't know if I really want to go into that weirdness, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, and, well, and you just you connect the Nephilim to the Canaanites, and I I don't know maybe mm-hmm. I just wasn't paying attention in my Old Testament class, uh, yeah. but I had never seen that connection drawn out. Yeah, the the we are in sort of the weird and bizarre corners of the Old Testament in talking about the Nephilim, um, but also kind of interesting and and perhaps important too. Um, you know, I I don't this isn't sort of the the main thread on or you know uh peg on which i hang my entire argument but it's an yeah. interesting piece of listening to the text that i think is yeah. important so the nephilim are this group that are associated with the offspring of this group of they're called the sons of god in genesis 6 who i think they're depicted as raping the daughters of humanity okay now that on its own is just already strange, troubling, and, and weird. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of this sort of boundary crossing dynamic you get in Genesis 1 to 11, where like humanity's trying to be like God, and in, in the Tower of Babel, bring the, either ascend to heaven or bring the gods down. Um, and you know, they're, the way sin plays out is causing fractures between humanity and creation, between male and female humans and creatures, et cetera. So all these sort of boundaries are being broken and crossed and including heaven and earth even, right? The Nephil, these, these sons of God coming into the daughters of humanity. And uh, it says in Genesis six, now the Nephilim were on earth, the earth in those days. And these things called the Giborim or the, the kind of warriors were born to the daughters of humans after they were raped by the divine sons. (laughs) Okay, so you've got the Giborim, the the mighty warriors, alongside the Nephilim, and Nephal in Hebrew means fall, right? So the fallen ones. So I think that we're to imagine, um, we're to make a mental association between the ancient warriors and these giants, the Nephilim. Well, yeah, it turns out the Nephilim are also in the promised land in Numbers 13 when the spies go in and they're like, there's giants in the land. Um, and and they sort of exaggerate it and they say there are giants in every city, right? Like they're all over the place. And uh, historically, it probably comes out of like in the in the late bronze era, you know, you could go into the land of Canaan and see some of the giant walls, old crumbled, but still present walls of the middle bronze period, which, you know, they had big city states back then. So they have this idea that the land is occupied by the Nephilim and their offspring who are called the Anakites. And there are all sorts of other offspring 
Zamzumim, Emim, Rephaim, um, and a few others I'm forgetting. So, so there are all these sort of giant races that are seen to be offspring of this corrupt um, act of these divine beings. Yeah. Now, it's, um, they show up in the land in numbers, but also in Joshua, where it talks about Joshua conquering these demigod uh, rulers of the land of Canaan. And I guess what interested me in that is that there is a sense in sort of foregrounding these these uh, Anakites, who are the offspring of the Nephilim, that that Joshua recognizes that there are kind of semi-spiritual forces animating the kings of Canaan. Mm-hmm. Um, at Joshua 11, toward the end of the chapter, the writer summarizes the campaigns in terms of the removal of the Anakim, as if like that captures what was happening in the conquest. Mm-hmm. And this is by no means an attempt to resolve the problem of violence, but there's an analogy here, at least, between Jesus and the way that he comes into the land and the forces he confronts very uh, physically, almost, are the the demonic forces that hold the people captive. Uh-huh. And, and these, um, like, yeah, there are a lot of other pieces to this, but one more important piece in terms of how ancient people thought about kings is they often thought about them as divine or semi-divine, as really giant as well. So when in artwork, when they would depict kings they would often be like two or three times the as the height of an ordinary person now obviously they weren't actually but that's a sort of it's a statement about status yeah so there were these these canaanite egyptian backed canaanite kings ruling the land who thought of themselves as or who were seen to be demigods um that become the kind of prime object of of this campaign against the North in Joshua 11. And, and I think that's a little window into like the spiritual Mm. uh, portrayal of the conquest uh, that this was not just a fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers that, that through the Imperial grip of Egypt held the land captive. I'm sure that leaves lots of questions, but that's a a few of the pieces of what I discuss in that chapter. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give it all away, but I just thought I'd bring it up because I was like, I totally like, yeah, I I mean, I had Dr. Sackenfeld for Old Testament at Princeton. I don't remember. And and then I had Dr. Olson for another one too. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was like, I I don't remember talking about how far down that goes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's. Well, one of the interesting things is that um, in there's a, a Ugaritic text, which is so Ugarit was a Canaanite kingdom to the north of Israel, not actually in the land that became Israel. Um, and and they talk about the fact that they're in in this Ugaritic text that there are these spiritual sort of um, animate ghost ghosts of of old kings who were living in particular towns that Joshua also locates them in. So it's crazy. <laughs> like so so Israel share seems to share this idea with its neighbors yeah. that uh, and Deuteronomy also mentions them in the same town. 
um, it shares this conception with its neighbors that these like spiritual forces were occupying particular towns. Like the same, they both have the same towns they mentioned. <laughs> huh. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my, my kind of switch gears question that I ask most of my guests is, uh, what is one thing that you held to be true, but now think is false, uh, or vice mm. versa. Um, and mm -hmm. oftentimes they relate it to like what they're researching in the book. Um, uh, but mm. I've also had kind of off the wall question or yeah. answers, um, including someone's love for hockey was one of them. Uh, and that changed, um, I grew up playing hockey. And so I think they might've known that, but, um, uh, but they yeah. realized that they loved it. Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So one, one thing, uh, that you kind of like did a total 180 on. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes like you hold to something when you're little, let's say like, I remember my friend, like really kind of being really into this idea that, that the, um, all the symbols on the dollar bill like represent the Illuminati or some, something like that. And I was like, wow, that's so cool and crazy. And, um, but it's not like I had a, a moment where I was like, it's all wrong. I just sort of like stopped believing it at some point. Yeah. Um, and then there are things like literal creation and flood that I used to not only hold to, but argue for. Mm. And, then, and that also, um, that's when I had to think through, but, came to a different view on. But one that I was thinking about was, um, I think, and this carried on into grad school, that I used to see a real antagonism, almost like a necessary antagonism between systematic and biblical theology. Mm. And and I think I, I saw that to be a biblical scholar, I had to kind of stand against systematic theology because the caricature was that systematic theology tries to put everything in a box yeah and 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 give nice clean neat answers and proof texts all the time <laughs> now there are forms of systematic theology that do that so sure. it's you know in in a few cases a, a fair caricature yeah but um i've i've done a 180 on on that one oh um yeah. such that i think systematic theology uh, is is very important for reading the Bible well, and also for thinking through what to do with the Bible. Yeah, um, in a way that that doesn't necessarily quash the diversity of Scripture or yeah. silence, ver you know, the the range of voices that we have in the Bible. Yeah. That was the fear I had, right? Yeah. Um, that you'd lose a sense of the dynamic, conversational, dialogical qualities of Scripture, mm. and. Uh, but it, but at the end of the day, like we we worship one God, hmm. and and so while I can emphasize, say, you know, as biblical scholars like to talk, Matthew's Jesus, Mark's Jesus, Luke's Jesus, John's Jesus, yeah, I follow one Jesus, right? Yeah. So I need these various voices, but I also have to think through what together they might say about Christ, right? Yeah. Um, so I, there's always that need for a, a synthetic move that preserves these distinct voices. Yeah. So anyway, that's one thing I've done a 180 on. 
Yeah, that's really helpful and interesting. It kind of raised the question a little bit for me too. Like what – so is that – is some of the question about like creation and that sort of thing, is that mm. what got you into studying uh, the Old Testament? You know, I mean I know not mm. – like whenever I look at job boards and stuff, there are a lot of openings yeah. in Old Testament. Uh, for <laughs> So not as many people are rushing to the Old Testament uh, yeah. PhDs and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, job, job world, but – I, I was drawn into it not through that question per se, although the topic interested me. Um, but I was I was drawn into it through studying uh, early Jewish literature. Actually, I went to Israel as an undergrad, and when I was there, we were looking at uh, extra biblical stuff from around the time of the New Testament, Dead Sea uh-huh. Scrolls and Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, and and we were looking at how they read the Old Testament, uh-huh. and and it just amazed me. Yeah. I was like so fascinated by the the both the the different ways that early Jewish writers engaged the Old Testament and also how the ways that they read it were analogous to ways the New Testament writers read it, who were yeah. of course also early Jewish interpreters. So um that that kind of sent me back to the Old Testament and I, I sort of never escaped. Yeah. Um and I ended up, you know, also of course like individual people play a big role. I had really yeah. good professors in that and sure. and that was very formative. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing the difference going to Israel makes in I think it was after yeah. my first year of seminary I went to Israel yeah. with a oh, did you? group yeah, with a group of rabbinical yeah. students. Uh so we oh. had Christian seminarians and rabbinical huh. students and oh, wow. I I so fell in love, like when they would talk about interpretation mm. and how they kind of came to understand things. Like the first yeah. time I realized that you couldn't eat a cheeseburger, um, and, <laughs> and like, but like how that connected to the Old Testament, I like didn't yeah. get. Uh, yeah. But then they explained it, and yeah. I just loved, you know, because like. And this is a negative caricature, but when I was like, oftentimes I felt like when I was growing up and I would have questions, it was mm-hmm. sort of the Bible says it, I believe, I believe it, that settles it. Um, right. But it obscures the interpretation and the negotiation yeah. and the, yeah. you know, and then, and then when I met these Jewish people, I was like, oh, you've got the Mikrot Gedalot, you've got the yeah. Talmud, you got all kinds of <laughs> yeah. stuff yeah. to help you navigate these problems. Yeah. And, and so I was like, I guess I must be Jewish. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not because I love Jesus, but I was like, yeah. man, I wh- what's the same? Yeah. So that's actually how I ended up mm. in doing patristics. Right? Oh, Pri- interesting. Primarily, I do pr- yeah. patristics because I was like, oh, we do have uh, you know generations of people thinking through right. what these things yeah. mean. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's an interesting uh, pathway into patristics, um, and and I, it's uh, it's interesting too to think about how within Judaism, like the citation of sages mm. is is built into you know the core sacred texts mm. in a way that for for Christians, they're they're not really you know so yeah. you have to intentionally pursue it. Mm-hmm. Even like they are in another sense, and we are part of a tradition, right? Yeah. That has a certain uh, pressure on us that that's a you could say is authoritative, but um, yeah. it's a different dynamic in the way that you know Rabbi so and so says this, yeah. Rabbi so and so says this. Like you just you're confronted immediately with with the citation of of the sages. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well. 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I want to be, uh, attentive to not give away the whole book. Uh, but I, I did think, I did like how you went through the minority and the majority readings of, uh, Joshua. Uh, could you just say something a little bit about how that helps us kind of, um, begin to kind of work through the difficulty of that text? Sure. Yeah. The book of, of Joshua and arguably other parts of the Pentateuch as well. Talk about the conquest in, in two distinct ways. And uh, when I, I sort of wrote something up on this and my friend Brad read it and he, he's like, oh, that's the minority and majority report. So I, I got that language from him. Uh-huh. Um, and the the majority report, is a, as I'm dubbing it there, is, is the idea that the conquest involved the total uh, destruction of the Canaanites, that they in fact left nothing alive that breathes men, women, children, animals were destroyed. And there are several summary statements to that effect in chapters 10, 11, and 21 um, that give this kind of Deuteronomy-like summary and say that not one of God's promises failed. Everything he said came true. It was a success. Thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Way to go. Um, And that's a kind of totalizing rhetoric. But then there's this other strand, the minority report, that runs its way through the book that acknowledges that, of course, Canaanites are still running around all over the place, and many, many of them survived. Yeah. And, and that's that minority report I, I consider closer to the on-the-ground historical kind of reality of the complexity of Israel's emergence in the land. Mm. Um, and so then the question is, all right, if we've got these two versions, are they just contradictory? Is the is the the book incoherent? And I don't uh-huh. think so. I think they have to be considered in terms of distinct forms of rhetoric. Uh-huh. One of, and they're both important in terms of how we appropriate the book of Joshua. Uh-huh. So I th- I think the totalizing majority report is an important call for Israel to reject the Canaanite way of life characterized by its kind of powerful Kings, its militarism, its idolatry and so on. Um, but then the, and, and that sort of in your face, totalizing rhetoric finds resonances in the teachings of Jesus too, where he's like, you know, if you're, sin if your if your hand causes you to sin cut it off if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out your foot cut it off right um to be my disciple you must hate your father mother sister brother yeah so that's that's the kind of call that we find in the majority report yeah in terms of how i think joshua is meant to be taken up by readers yeah now you don't you don't get out of that rhetoric by saying like, oh, we don't have to really take it seriously because they didn't really mean it, right? Because yeah. Jesus meant it at some level, but not a literal level. Uh-huh. Um, you, it's to be taken seriously, but not yeah. literally. Sure. And I think that for the majority report. Yeah. And the minority report gives us a kind of more accurate picture of what happened historically. And, and I think knowing sort of which register you're in as you're reading is is helpful. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of that's why I tried to unpack that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, 
Well, uh, another question that that I had from a student that I didn't have a very good answer for, um, <laughs> and in part it's just because I I, I teach too many things and. Uh, you know, but, but also I, uh, I, I just didn't know I hadn't thought about it like that, but, mm. but we live in St. Louis and there's a lot mm. of, uh, uh, violence. And, and this guy was, uh, was asking me about like, well, specifically like how, how does the old Testament speak about, um, personal violence? So he was, yeah. le- you know, it wasn't necessarily about yeah. the genocide. So, uh, I mean, your book is more about these big narratives, but, right. uh, but is there something that you 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 know in a similar way that you read the Old Testament mm. larger uh, fashion that helps you think about like maybe cases of revenge or maybe just mm-hmm. like how we are as you know Christians reading this book how what could that help how could that help us mm. understand like what to do if someone in our community you know is yeah. uh, uh, falls victim to gun violence because that yeah. happens sadly quite frequently here yeah yeah so I think. I think the the Bible is acutely aware of the dangers of taking a personal like of personal vendettas. Yeah. Um that that escalates into more and more violence. So I think the I think the Old Testament is is pretty unanimous in certainly in the Torah of, of prohibiting mm-hmm. a person's ability to take personal revenge. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't leave it there and say, just forget about it. It it does say, God says, vengeance is mine. That That's a notion that appears in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the book of Revelation, which has a, a really sort of peaceful resistance theme to it, begins with the cry of the martyrs under the altar saying, how long until you avenge our blood? Mm-hmm. So committing that... Um, you could, like uttering that cry of vengeance to God is is very consistent throughout Scripture, uh-huh. with with a view to the idea that God does bring justice. Now, one of the ways that does happen in the Old Testament within the legal system is through the judicial system. Mm. So, vengeance is God's, but He also allows Israel to, through a just legal system, mm. enact vengeance and and when we hear vengeance we might associate that simplistically with sort of like getting back at uh-huh. but vengeance in the biblical sense is proportionate justice mm-hmm. um and that's very important yeah. so so it leaves a place for that and and it there's a need for that but but at the personal sort of taking it yourself into your own hands no way yeah and and in fact um, Leviticus even prohibits you from from uh, holding a grudge against your your neighbor, uh-huh. right? So, but you can't just come alongside someone who's been a victim of violence and say, "Hey, Bible says you you can't even hold a grudge," yeah. right? Because it also acknowledges the need for vengeance and and this is another piece of it. Um, even if they don't have the voice to do it, their blood will cry out to God, and God hears that. Mm. And so God hears the chorus of shed blood crying out to him um, and is especially attuned to it. And in fact, the, the whole Exodus story gets rolling in response to the cries of victims. So it says in Exodus 2, you know, you don't have a lot of God involvement in chapters 1 and 2, but at the very end, 
we hear that the people groan under the weight of their burdens and under their oppression, and their cry goes up to God. It's not even directed at God. Uh-huh. And God hears. Hmm. He remembers the covenant. He sees their oppression, and he comes down, and he acts. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. So, so God is deeply attuned to cries of victims um, and the blood of victims as it cries out. Yeah. Uh, and and I think another sort of place this comes up too is in the life of David. Mm. You know, for all David's faults, especially early in his career, he's really commended for not taking personal vengeance on Saul, mm. or um, when he had multiple occasions to do so on uh, Nabal, when when he he's about to go enact vengeance, personal vengeance, and Abigail saves the day. She she stops him, and he's like, whoa, you've just saved me from incurring the wrath of God on me if I had taken personal vengeance. Yeah. Even if at some level he thought it was justified. Yeah. So so he's portrayed as someone who doesn't enact justice, he doesn't enact vengeance on Saul's descendants either. Yeah. Uh, but he, he falters at the end of his career when he outsources it to Solomon. He's like, I didn't do it, but what's to stop you? <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, so I, I, that's how I'd kind of think about that issue. Excellent. Well, Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on A History of Christian Theology. It has been wonderful to get to know you a little bit um, and definitely to read through your book, which, as I've said, I really enjoyed um, and will definitely uh, be encouraging people to read it as they think through um, this difficult question of violence in the Old Testament. Thanks so much, Chad. I really enjoyed our conversation. All right.